This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, welcome back to The Bunker, your need-to-know-your news and politics. I'm Raphael Baer. Is all of politics controlled by a vast secret network of murderous satanic child kidnappers? Is the news really a vast movie reel, a fiction, an exercise in sinister mind control to hide the terrible truth? No, obviously not. Well, I say obviously. It sounds pretty far-fetched to me, and I'm guessing to everyone listening to this podcast. It's the stuff of deranged conspiracy theory, and yet hundreds of thousands of people worldwide follow QAnon, the conspiratorial cult that believes the US and other societies have been captured by a global paedophile ring. Many more adhere to at least some of the paranoid delusions, sub-theories that spiral out from the original conspiracy. Are they all mad? What leads them to prefer these fantastical claims over the banal reality of politics? Where did it start? And where will it end? These are questions that get to the very heart of a malaise in Western democracies, a sickness that is brilliantly diagnosed in a new book by James Ball, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and a former colleague of mine at The Guardian, and now author of The Other Pandemic, How QAnon Contaminated the World. It's an engaging and alarming account of a phenomenon that is much bigger and more persistent, more resilient than many people realise. I'm pleased that James is joining me in the bunker to explain why. Hello, James. Hello, pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us. Now, by way of starting, QAnon, right? It's this huge labyrinth of paranoia and conspiracy. There are so many rabbit holes we could get lost down. And, and maybe we could start instead by zooming the lens out as far as we can to survey the whole rabbit warren, as it were. Is there a core belief that qualifies someone as a QAnon follower? And if so, what is it? I think the absolute core one is that there's an abusive, possibly satanic conspiracy internationally against the everyday person. It usually involves the idea of child abuse or ritual murder. And essentially, it tends to come down to some kind of population control or even mass depopulation. It started as Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, with Clinton as the head of this cabal, sometimes referred to as the cabal, sometimes as the globalists, um, a fairly loaded term if you know its history. But it's also now said to include George Soros, Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, sort of really anyone who sort of does things that some of these people don't like. Do they... And do they all really believe this stuff in a sense that one of the things you explore is that the origin of this belief system, these theories in a kind of semi-ironic, half-knowing, arch-trolling culture online that seems to somehow contain this paradoxical thing where you can both passionately think this is true and also know somehow that it's a game. And could you maybe just sort of unpack some of that, people listening to this? Because it's, it seems to me to get to the essence of, the, of the, this sort of liquid quality of this weird concept. 
it's an old saying that the mask becomes the face. And essentially, I think quite a few people got into this cynically. QAnon essentially started as a bit of an online joke. Um, Pizzagate, which started it, which was this idea that there were secret codes inside emails from Hillary Clinton's aide, John Podesta. And so this was the idea that when there were some very boring emails sort of saying, can someone send out for pizza? That was actually procuring a young child for sex. Now, that started on 4chan as trolling, as let's see if we can get people to believe this ridiculous thing. But then people very quickly came to sincerely believe it, and it snowballed out of hand. Some of the other ways in which you explore this very well in the book is the, the sort of generational shift that happened specifically in 4chan in that respect. Now, by generational, I don't mean sort of 30 years. I mean different sorts of waves of users. And it might be useful if people don't necessarily know what 4chan is to talk me through 4chan as the sort of Petri dish in which this pathogen grew. So at its core, 4chan's just a messaging board. It's quite similar to Reddit. It's on the open web. It's not on the dark net or anything like that. But it's got a very particular culture. It was sort of founded when I was about 17, 18. And I spent a few years on there just as a teenage user of it. Um, It doesn't let anyone have usernames. Everyone posts as anonymous. And so boards build up their identity by their culture. And two in particular, B and Paul, kind of built up this culture as sort of offensive, nihilistic, anarchic. But a lot of this was fun. You know, Rick Rolling was born on 4chan. Uh, Lolcats were born on 4chan. All sorts of bits of internet culture started out there. A lot of internet speak was born there. What's fascinating about that is how much of things that people now use as their day-to-day idiom, their language, the, you know, the, the, the sort of lexicography of internet communication actually has the same sort of ground zero as this more sinister, weird stuff. And sp- specifically, you know, that raises the question of, like, of who is Q and what was Q doing that was so effective that unlike all the other crazy stuff that was said on these chatbots and on 4chan, it blossomed into this particularly powerful subculture. So 4chan got really good at making stuff that the rest of the internet liked or adopted. It was good at getting attention and going viral. But, you know, it was rude. People would be very sexist. People would be casually homophobic. The levels of racism on there were pretty bad all the way through. But it was essentially teenage boys, young men, and they, you know... As, as I did, most people on there got a life. You know, they start to get a job, they went to uni, they built up a real-world social life, and they went on less and less until they just stopped going on at all. What happened was some people stayed behind, and you need more of a hit. So where once you might just prank someone into watching a stupid music video, you might then prank them into watching porn and then into violent content – And the language gets worse, the moods get worse, and people actually start to be bitter and nihilistic rather than playing at it. And so when new people come in, it's got a darker edge to it. And so 4chan progressively gets worse because of the people who escape it and the people who don't. And that sort of meant by the time of sort of 2016 or so, it did lean quite hard towards the sort of alt-right and the far-right. And... People would play on there, essentially pretending to be CIA insiders. So that was CIA anon, NSA anon. And by the, the reason that we sort of got to QAnon is that 
there were people pretending to be in all the bigger agencies. And Q is a clearance level in the Department of Energy, which handles the USA's nuclear material. And the guy who was writing it was just really compelling. You know, he was sort of prophesizing action against Clinton in weeks to come, was saying Donald Trump was leading an operation against the deep state and would always sort of say, don't take my word for it. You know, go find someone in the National Guard and ask them if they've been called up on X, you know, see how they react type stuff. Is it, I don't want to go into who Q actually is or was, not least because that's a bit of a spoiler and I want people to go out and get the book and read it. So, well, let's park who Q might or might not have been um, and pick up instead this really fascinating for me element of of the sort of this leaving crumbs and seeds for people to follow to sort of build their own adventure online because it seems to me that's you know, essentially what makes QAnon as it as the thing it became, the conspiracy theory, something that's more indigenously online than previous conspiracy theories. Because it's got a lot of other old school conspiracy theory in it. Conspiracy theory definitely predates the internet. And Gamergate is important in this as well. This sense that some, there's something about the combination of sort of radicalized, resentful male virginity meets sort of choose your own adventure, massive online digital gaming plus old world analog tropes of mad conspiracy theory that somehow come together in a kind of a nuclear fusion moment and create this new force. Is that a sort of crude but fair summary of what happens? I think that's a great summary of how it got going. It's important to flag these days, you know, QAnon started with angry young men. It's gone well beyond that demo these days. But what made QAnon as a movement so compelling? As you say, it's not the conspiracies themselves. It's kind of sucked in loads of old existing conspiracy theories and movements and brought them into one. It's this sort of intriguing gaming type method of it that actually encourages you to self-radicalize. One of the, the various mantras of it are do your own research and who could object to doing your own research, follow the breadcrumbs. And the original Q posts were quite Socratic almost. They sort of posed little questions and invited you to sort of search the answers. And if you start seeing gaps, it's quite easy to go, well, how do we know that 9-11 was this? Why wasn't that X? Why wasn't... And people start asking those questions. You search those questions, you tend to find more conspiracy material but you feel like you're getting it from loads of different sources and you're piecing something together. And it's really compelling because it's posing lots of different, almost nonsensical questions to you. You will search the question you find most interesting. And so you create the most appealing route in for yourself. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because, and as you say, it sort of becomes auto-radicalizing. And I think two things are going on there. One is cognitively... The conclusion you've arrived at for yourself when the connections happened inside your brain goes in much harder and forms a much more secure belief because, as you say, it's sort of it's imitating the process of rational deduction uh, and it sort of co-opts the methodology of skepticism saying, no, I haven't just been spoon fed this stuff the way all the other idiots, the sheeple are taking their stuff from the mainstream media. I've actually found this myself. But you're also going with the grain of the of the sort of a YouTube algorithm by searching for precisely the stuff that's going to radicalize you. And it's not that the algorithm is making you watch this stuff, but you're inviting it to serve you that content. Exactly. Traditional cults sort of work out what works and compels some people into it. 
and chase us off others very early. But they tend to be stuck with one route, one leader, one rationale. This has sort of emerged. You know, this wasn't a deliberate tactic. And so because there's no one to say, yes, this is part of Q or no, this isn't, it, it means people sort of create a thing that pulls them into at least feeling associated with the community. And then if you are sort of with people, you've got a shared cause. But we also know, you know, one of the more interesting experiments in social psychology, and this one does replicate, this one works. If you get a group of people together who agree on an issue and ask them to talk about the issue and come up with some proposals, even over the course of an hour or so, they won't settle on the middle of where they were as a group at the start of the hour. They will settle pretty much towards the extreme end. That's interesting. Um, when you're talking to people who agree with you and share your views, you start expressing them and feeling them more strongly, especially when there's no one sort of offering an alternative one. You know, no one going, hey, that might be a bad thing, etc. If you are stuck just in those groups or mostly in those groups, you push towards the limits of it. I want to come on to how this then manifests in analog politics for want of a better term but just before we do this the multiple entry points i think is interesting because we've talked a little bit about sort of incelism and the outright far right elements of this but what's interesting is how it also imitates the sort of horseshoe theory of radical politics where there's a radical left component that comes through through a different avenue which is sort of new age almost a kind of hippie anti-rational ethos that I think particularly that element of it gets turbocharged, particularly in the pandemic, because that side of things latches onto vaccine hesitancy and therefore, and then anti-vax conspiracy theory comes in through that route. Yeah. I mean, lots of people mistrust Big Pharma, and I think there's lots of good reasons to be very sceptical of Big Pharma's intentions. But if you've heard for years that vaccines take 10 years to develop, and suddenly one appears in a year, that's not unreasonable to kind of go, well, how come this is safe? And there is a real answer to that. It's not that any safety tests were skipped, et cetera. But people will have legitimate questions, and those are easy for conspiratorial moments to jump on. If people are into sort of Reiki and crystals and these kind of alternative things already, it's often that the mainstreams let them down. And so they don't trust medicine, and that's easy to move over when health is the one news story globally into politics. And if you start believing that thousands of people at the very top in charge are doing something malicious and conspiring against the public for one reason, why would they keep it just to that one area? Once you are inside conspiracy logic... If you think that people are forcing a vaccine on the world that isn't needed for whatever nefarious reason you think it is, well, why wouldn't they also be covering up possibly child abuse or covering up you know, faking elections or doing the other stuff? On the internal logic, it works. Well, that, that, that closed loop of internal logic is incredibly important because, you know, first of all, you get into the mindset where the absence of evidence is evidence of a cover-up, you know, and, also, yeah. and, and and by extension, any anyone like me or you saying, "Well, actually, th that's not how it works," uh, invites response. Well, you're a mainstream media journalist, of course, you'd be in on it. You know, you have a vested interest. 
Or, you know, if you might you might not be in on it, but if you were the kind of person asking these questions, they'd hound you out quickly enough, you know, you're only there because you're the right sort of idiot for them. Now, you mentioned, uh, we, we've sort of alluded to the centrality of Donald Trump as the figure who's who understands this, who's also sort of dropping hints or who's supposed to be the operative who will one day move against the giant conspiracy. And I wonder how central the insurrection and the 6th of January was. It seems to me to to occupy two very important functions in this. One is making an awful lot of people realise that this is something that can punch through to real politics in a spectacularly dangerous way. I mean, that was an actual uprising against the constitutional order of the American Republic, such as hasn't happened in you know, a madness, extra, extraordinary. But also, its failure and actually the slight crapness of it uh, ought to have been a kind of scales falling from the eyes moment, a rebuttal, and it wasn't. And that, those are so just, I'd be interested in your sense of, you know, how pivotal that was and what that tells us about what the next stage of the evolution of, of this thing is likely to be. I think it probably had the opposite effect to what a lot of people who I, I think are very good observers of this stuff usually sort of said on the day. In that I think it had a big effect on people not in the Q movement and very little effect on people in there. You know, I talk in the book about doomsday cults, especially ones that predict dates and what tends to happen when it doesn't manifest. And you tend to find that most of them just come up with a new narrative and carry on in the movement. And that's what most QAnon people did. They sort of moved on either slightly from Trump or sort of came away from it. But it was January the 6th that eventually got Facebook and Google and co to ban most QAnon content. So they took action in one way, but it was also when essentially the Republican Party embraced it. You know, they did try and look to a fringe online conspiracy movement to overthrow the government. Um, not everyone who was involved in January the 6th is sort of fully in queue, but they're all pretty queue adjacent. It was very, very easy to see the many, many connections there. And Trump now walks on stage to rallies to a QAnon sort of anthem. You know, he's very happy to flirt with that group. And Mike Flynn, who is briefly his national security advisor, is a very open public advocate of Q. And how much of this, again, is people doing something incredibly cynical because they've seen where their base is and people who are actually radicalised. Traditionally, obviously, if you use a Third Reich comparison, you've sort of lost the argument. But I do think it's interesting when you look at the emergence of fascism in the through the late 1920s and early 1930s, you know, the, that combination of essentially criminal power grab for the sake of it and actual weird occult belief and voodoo that actually became part of the ideology. And they're not as separable as you might think. Is there something like that going on here that actually some of these people who are gaming this for power also kind of believe it? Yeah, I think people always start to believe their own hype and become enthralled to their own fans. Trump has always had a bit of a persecution complex. And so the idea, you know, I'm sure on some level he believes there's a deep state working against him. Now, does he believe all the rest of it? Possibly not, but he'll believe enough of it that he can fairly sincerely tap into it. You know, I think various of the boosters sort of start by going, hey, these guys are nuts, but, you know, there are nuts, let's let's indulge them. Um 
but again, it's that thing of you spend all your time surrounded by people with these beliefs. You're going to start at least on a surface level believing a lot of it. And I think most people don't spend a lot of time challenging their own preconceptions and beliefs. And so I think it's that slow shift from, ah, I'm mostly just indulging this, you know, I'm playing with it, to, no, actually, I believe it. And also, I suppose, when a set of beliefs gets encoded in the vocabulary that you use, you are no longer conscious of the wider edifice of meaning behind the term that you use. So going back, you know, we alluded to globalism as a, as a code word. I mean, that has all sorts of anti-Semitic connotations, this idea of sort of a international, capitalistic, or in some cases, socialistic uh, Jewish world government through bankers and Goldman Sachs and all sorts of things that reach back two, three centuries of anti-Semitism. Now, people who now talk about globalism as a sinister force, they might not even know that, but they have encoded that aspect of it in their vocabulary. So you don't necessarily need to believe the whole thing to be, as it were, a vector for the wider the problem. And, and the reason I sort of expand that, there is a question coming up here, because the core argument of your book, which I find very persuasive, is that this is a pandemic, but not just in a metaphorical sense. It's not just things go viral metaphorically like a virus. It actually is a virus. That The online environment, the digital space where memes are transmitted in the original sense of the word meme, a unit of culture that replicates like a genetic phenomenon, is actually mutating. It is an actual disease. Is that, is that a fair summary of where you take the argument? Yeah, it absolutely is. I started writing the book thinking it was a metaphor, and I finished thinking it was literal. I don't think it's crucial to agree with me that it's literal to find the book and the analogy useful, I hope. But, you know, one of the interesting things about viruses is they're not alive. They're also tiny. A virus, if you put it on a computer, would be a file about 1.2 kilobytes big, which means you could put about 1,000 on an old-school floppy disk. You know, these are really, really basic self-replicating units, but they need to infect people or hosts to replicate. Now, if that description doesn't also fit a meme, I don't know what does. You know, some of these tropes are very, very old. You know, I reference in the book Blood Libel, which is the idea that Jews engage in ritual sacrifice of Christian children. That's at least a thousand years old. That's a meme. But now, in the way our digital spaces work, they can propagate much faster. They can mutate much faster. They can spread in more compelling ways, just like COVID kept getting better and better spike proteins. And so we had, you know, Delta and then Omicron and et cetera, et cetera. That's what's happening with these. And QAnon is essentially a evolution, a variant of Pizzagate, which sort of grew out of the alt-right, which grew out of. And so I think, you know, people prefer to think of conspiracy theories as something that happened to other people uh, or to stupid people or to the opposite political persuasion from us. They're actually, if anything, more likely to hit cleverer people because cleverer people like to research and look into stuff for themselves. You know, there are Nobel Prize winners who are full-on conspiracy cranks. Yeah, doctors, medical professionals who went full anti-vax. And, it's in, yeah. and again, that, that connects to that sense that there's something very appealing about the sort of satisfying click, like the sort of three 
pronged plug going into the socket with a reassuring connection (laughs) that if you are the kind of person who prides yourself on being sceptical and rational, when you just get that little short circuit, when when the spark jumps across and you're you're making those connections, but within the sphere of conspiracy theory, you still get that gratification for having done your own research, but also it all fits together. And actually, frankly, you get that, I think there's an element where people who get really into sort of uh, Marxist ideas of, of left politics also gravitate towards a slightly conspiratorial view of everything because it's a self-contained system that can explain everything if you feed the data in the right way. Yeah, it's the I see behind the curtain, I see what other people can't. And that's oddly quite empowering. It's also important not to just think about these in terms of media. When society is going badly for people, when people think they're doing everything they should be and it's not working... You know, they're not getting a good quality of life. They don't think their kids are going to be better off than they are, etc. People look to why. That's often what fuels sort of xenophobia and anti-immigration sentiments. But it is what makes people think something's going wrong with society fundamentally. Um, and so you get this issue where, you know, we're in a big stagnation at the moment. The cost of living's tight, etc. People look for explanations and look for villains. And it's sort of more reassuring to think that someone's conspiring against you than just that the world is this complicated and difficult and no one really knows what to do. Yeah, I mean, I remember someone actually, uh, a former advisor in Downing Street once saying to me, like, if these people knew how chaotic and disorganized it really is, they would be even more scared. You know, they have no idea how bad it is. You know, the idea that anyone, anyone's capable of organizing a conspiracy on that scale, we wish we could, but there's absolutely no chance we'd be that organized. You know? Yeah, well, I think that's why people, especially, you know, in in political journalism, just very quickly end up not believing this because it's like, Mate, no, he's always drunk after seven o'clock. You know, he hates him. He would never do that. And if you tell three people anything in Downing Street, the first thing they'll do is tax someone in the lobby. Well, exactly. <laughs> you and I can say these are the reasons why that can't possibly be the case. Uh, you could say, you know, the, the budget alone for hush money is to pay <laughs> everyone who's ever worked at NASA to deny, you know, that, that the moon landing was a fake. You know, it, it falls apart immediately, right? And yet, we also know that myth busting and fact checking are often counterproductive. Is there an optimistic way of looking at this, which is that we, you know, we're sort of at the early stages of digitization that might be analogous to sort of early industrialization, where suddenly everyone's living in cities and everyone's using the same water pump and they're all giving each other cholera and they're all dying. Everyone's going, maybe there's miasmas around that are passing this in the air. Maybe that's what it is. And then someone goes, well, maybe actually if everyone puts their hand on that dirty pump handle, the disease is in the water. And we're at that bit now of higgledy-piggledy, unregulated internet sort of agglomeration into a society. And eventually we'll just develop the infrastructure, the hygiene will say, actually, you know, you, if everyone drives on the left, we won't have as many road accidents. If everyone limits themselves to 70 miles an hour on the motorway, there won't be horrendous pileups. Do you see, do you see what I mean? That we could just, we're in the early stages. That's exactly where I think we are. That's why the call in the book isn't a big set of specific things. It's saying we need to think about, you know, these digital pathogens exist and will continue to. You know, cholera still exists, but we know how it spreads and we can live with it at a vastly lower cost to life, to health, and financially than we used to have to bear with. I think we will have these with us, but we will learn and develop digital immunity. But 
that didn't just happen. People started looking into it. People made their careers doing it. You know, there are still pubs in central London named after Jon Snow for his discovery of how cholera spread. Hopefully, in a century or two, we'll have some sort of pubs named after people who uh, worked out the same online. Um, Well, on that optimistic note, I think we're probably out of time and we can all go down to the uh, the James Ball pub for a few pints uh, and to continue discussing this further. Um, but before we do, I have to say thank you, James, for your time and insight. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to the Bunker production team for their stellar work. And thank you for listening. And also remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras, including the episodes ad-free. I'm Raphael Bear. Thank you for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Raphael Bear, author of Politics, A Survivor's Guide. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.